Alright, if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to continue our series here on Jesus building his church. We will get back to Revelation. I don't know when we will, but we will. There is a Barna research group, which we're all familiar with. We know the pollsters. There are many polls that are always taken trying to get a feel for the state of the American church or a state of American spirituality, where there's another one that just came out that was nationwide and it sampled Americans across the board. And it was, it was trying to discover the top five reasons why Americans go to church. What are the top five reasons? Why do Americans go to church? They were asked to respond in this statement. This is what it said. Quote, for most people, there are a few key factors that determine whether or not someone will return to a church they visited. For each factor this survey mentions, please indicate if that factor would be extremely important, pretty important, somewhat important, or not important at all in your decision of whether to return to the church you visited. Now, there were 22 factors that came into play. And they included worship styles, and they communicated all the programs of community outreaches that were involved. And here are the top eight reasons for selecting a church. In order of importance, the number one reason for selecting a church is, number one, theological beliefs. Number two, how much people care. Number three, the quality of sermons. Number four, friendliness to visitors. Number five, help to the poor and to the disadvantaged. Number six, the quality of the children's programs. Number seven, how much you like your pastor. I think that should be number one. (laughs) Number eight, the denomination. Isn't that interesting? Those are the top eight reasons why Americans, we, go to church. You know what's so jarring about this list? Not one of them make Jesus' list for why you go to church. Now, we might be able to parse down number one, theological beliefs, couldn't we? If we parse that thing down, we can get it down to maybe what theological beliefs are we talking about. And then we need to move beyond that to something else. Maybe we could go that route. But if Jesus was to give us a list for why we go to church and your number one reason to go to church today, none of these 22 factors or these top eight reasons would be on the list. That should stun us. So why do you go to church? What gets you up in the morning to come to church? Or what motivates you to be the church Now remember, the church is two great factors. When you talk about the church, sometimes we emphasize one over the other. The church is an organization. It's visible. And it's organic. Invisible. It's not one or the other, or one without the other, and it's not mixing the two. They're distinct, but not separate. Okay? So whatever we're going to talk about, the church organic, or the church organizationally, what motivates us to go to church? What motivates you to be the church? What motivates you to be involved in the life of the church? Because your parents make you come on Sunday morning. Because your parents make you be involved. That could be many reasons why many of us go to church. 
It could be to feel good about ourselves. It could be because we want to work for God and we want to check off our checklist to make sure we're right with God and that we feel good in, in relating to Him and confident about our relationship with God because we're doing what He tells us to do. And it's a checklist. It's a, it's a sense in which we don't want to feel guilty for the rest of the week. That could be a reason. It could be because we're very dutiful people and we know it's the right thing to do. And we want to set an example for our children and for others. It could be we, we want to see our friends because we'll miss them. And it could be that we, we don't want others to think badly about us if we don't go to church or if we're not involved in the life of the church. There's a whole host of reasons. So why do you go to church? Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Matthew 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am, the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this is the strange way to end it, isn't it? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we ask for the blessing of your word. We all admit very readily and in some varying degrees that apart from you, we will not understand your word. And apart from your help, your very present help right now, we can't hear you. We can't see you. We can't even comprehend what's going on in this passage. We can't preach it. We can't hear it. We can't believe it. We can't be changed by it. So, oh God, we're asking you to give what you promised to do in this passage, and that's build your church. So, yeah, the gates of hell won't prevail, but... Even our apathy won't prevail. And our ignorance won't prevail. And our stubbornness won't prevail. And our hardness and coldness and lack won't prevail. Our weakness. So, O oh Lord, Jesus, build your church. Amen. Alright, the big idea of Matthew is Peter is... Peter's confession, yes, Jesus' confession, that I will build my church. That is the central big idea of this passage. Jesus says, I will build my church. It's not a confession of something done wrong, but it's a rock-solid promise that he will do something. And this is a powerful promise. Remember we saw that this promise is so powerful that we need to get our, our minds and our hearts and our hands around it. It needs to shake us from our teeth down to our toes. It needs to pulsate the very life of our lives and the life of our corporate life. I need to hear this promise. You need to hear this promise. New believers need to hear this promise. 
New church members and regular attenders need to hear this promise that Jesus will build his church. We need to believe this. We need to see the light and the glory and the truth of it. We need to have this truth taken into the very depths of our soul in such a way that it it radiates its life and it feeds its nourishment to us. We need this. We need to hear that we do not build Jesus' church. We don't build our own church, number one. We all need to hear that. It's not about our vision, and it's not about our mission, and it's not about our theology, and it's not about our reformation, and it's not about our programs, and it's not about our light and our heat. It's not about any of that. And we also need to hear that we don't work hard to build His church. It's not about all our effort. It's not about our way of doing things to get it done. We need to realize that we don't build anything at all. That Jesus builds His church. And if we begin to believe that, if we begin to have that taken into our soul, we will pray. We'll pray things like, Oh God, please build your church. Build your church in my life. Build your church in my family's life. Build your church in those that I love. Build your church in Waco. Build your church in Kazakhstan and China. Build your church in Temple in Central Texas. Build your church, Lord. And we'll pray that He'll do stuff like that. So when we actually begin to get a hold of this, it actually compels us because the power in it creates power in the life of those who believe it. And we actually will pray, Oh God, build your church. And we'll also be bold. We'll pray, Oh God, you build your church and use me. If Jesus builds His church, now we want to be instruments in His hand and a part of His plan and not getting in the way of what He's doing. And so we will ask and be bold. And that means we have conversations, real-life conversations with people about Jesus. And we're bold in in an honest way, in a real way. In fact, we'll not only be bold, but we'll be genuine. Because, Jesus, You build Your church and we don't build Your church. I don't do it. We'll avoid all the glitz and the glamour and we'll avoid all the selling of Jesus and we'll avoid all the spiritual consumerism. Instead, we'll be real, bold, affectionate, loving, hospitable, warm people that have a courage to them and a boldness to them because Jesus does it. But also a compassion and a genuineness and a mercy because we know that Jesus does it and we don't. Do you see what this would do to us if we actually believe it? So what we're going to do is we're going to continue to look at this powerful promise that Jesus will build his church. Last week we looked at Peter's confession and saw that that Christ is the hero king. And now we're going to look at something else. We're going to look at the number one reason you go to church. What is the number one reason to go to church? To be the church, whether visible, invisible, organized, or organic. What is it? Well, Napoleon of France was the greatest military genius of his time, according to historians. I beg to differ on several issues, but I think that's pretty safe to say. The evidence speaks for itself. He conquered all of Central and most of Western Europe. He created an empire that was vast. But at his eventual defeat in 1815 in June, by who? Remember? United Kingdom's Duke Wellington at where? Waterloo, yes. Thank you, Denise. 
He tried to escape to the United States after that defeat, but he was caught. The British caught him. They put him on an exiled island called St. Helena in the South Atlantic Ocean. And it was there that he penned these words. This is what he says. He says, look, you speak of Caesar. You speak of Alexander and their conquests. You can just see him writing as he exiled from all his troops. You speak of them and you speak of the enthusiasm they kindled in the hearts of their soldiers. But he says, but can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithfully and entirely devoted to his memory? My army has forgotten me while I'm living. I'm here. They've forgotten me. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? And he writes with an exclamation point upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would lay down their lives for him. I have inspired multitudes, and they would die for me. But after all, my presence was necessary. The lightning in my eye, the lightning in my voice, right? A word from me and then the sacred fire would be kindled in their hearts and they'd lay down their lives and they'd do whatever I'd tell them. Which way, Napoleon? How far, right? Now that I'm at St. Helena alone, chained upon this rock, who fights and wins empires for me now? What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal reign of Christ who is proclaimed, loved, cherished, prized, and whose reign is extending all over the earth even as I write. My friends, why do you go to church? Why do we do church? There's only one reason. Jesus. Jesus. That needs to be the top of our list. Now, the church is all about Jesus, and this passage is all about Jesus. There's meaning in content, and there's meaning in structure whenever you come to the Scriptures. The Scripture is always communicating, and it's communicating, yes, in its lexology, and it's communicating in its words, and you can do word studies and find great meaning in particular parts of Scripture, but you also need to watch how the Scripture actually organizes itself, how its structure or its form. Remember we've talked about in the past, which is so, so important when you come to the Scripture, that there's... The water of meaning in Scripture, but the water is carried in a bucket. And the different forms of Scripture are the different buckets in Scripture. And when you come to this passage, the whole bucket that's delivering the water is showing you that it's all about Jesus. How do we know this? Well, it's interesting is that this is the first time the church is used and mentioned in all the Gospels. The first time. And there's only one other time, and that's in Matthew 18, that in all the Gospels, the church is actually used on the lips of Jesus. In all the Gospels. So you have the first time the church is even used. And it's used in a, in a passage that makes much about Jesus from beginning to end. Look how it begins. It begins with the question, 
Who do people say that I am? And it ends with, don't tell anybody who I am. That's a hint of the structure. It's all revolving around the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the stuff of this passage. And if we still don't get it, it bookends with Jesus. And then the central proclamation is Peter's powerful, bold proclamation. You're the hero king. And that comes dead center in the structure. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the church is mentioned in the context of Jesus. Why do you go to church? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Do you get it, readers, he's saying? The church is about me. From beginning to end. Now, what's interesting is look again at how this begins. I want to nail this down a little tighter. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, I mean, it's like the passage can't wait for you to run into Jesus. It can't wait to say, look, this is where we're going and it's going to be very, very clear. I'm going to take you into this wall and that's all we're going to do. I'm going to bang your head against that wall through the whole passage. It's about Jesus. Notice it's the disciples are with Jesus. They're right there with him. How do we know that? Well, he turns around and he asks them the question, remember? But notice that it's now Jesus came to Caesarea. That's not the normal protocol of how this this gospel marks out when they move to a certain place. If the disciples are with Jesus, they're mentioned. In fact, turn to, just so we can prove this, turn to 1434. In 1434, it says, And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Now, who's they? Well, obviously, that's Jesus and the disciples. But again, the disciples are with Jesus in this particular passage, but only Jesus is the one that's mentioned as the one that came, because the whole point of the passage is Jesus. Everything is about Jesus in this passage. So the beginning, middle, and end of the church is Jesus. We never move off of Jesus. Jesus is the vision. Jesus is the mission. We never move off that. It's Jesus in our fellowship. It's Jesus in our community. You never move off that. It's Jesus in the Bible study. Surely, yes, the content. The conversation. The small group. It's Jesus as the evangelism to know God. It's Jesus as the grace that we actually grow. It's Jesus as the power that actually strengthens us in the Christian life. It's Jesus as the refuge. And Jesus as the rock. It's Jesus as everything. That's the point of the passage. You never move off Jesus is the point of the passage. So it's not... And I... It's not Jesus for the unbeliever and the Holy Spirit for the believer. It's Jesus for the unbeliever, Jesus for the believer, Jesus for the first of faith, and Jesus for your continuance in faith. It's Jesus from beginning to end. How many times can I now say that same thing? Right? Okay. I was on the phone this past week with a fellow pastor and a friend, a very dear friend. In fact, a friend that's come out of this church. Redeemer nurtured him. Redeemer trained him. Redeemer developed him. Redeemer then sent him out into ministry. And his wife called me. Because he's going through a very hard time. Deeply discouraged. Personally, ministry, family, 
When I talked to his wife, you began to see a knot that had so many strands in it, it was, it was pretty powerful. She called me because she was kind of desperate too. So I hollered at him on the phone. I said, hey, how you doing? A little bird told me you are discouraged. And he began to tell me about the different strains that are making up this knot of deep discouragement in his life. And he said, Jeff, I'm finding tremendous comfort from Calvin and his institute. And right away I had this... You know, I thought, yeah, I'm deeply discouraged. I'm going to go read some Calvin. Is that how y'all think? I'm down in the dumps and I'm really having a hard time. My, no one understands me. My spouse doesn't understand me. My kids, I don't know what's going on. It seems I've lost all my friends. Where do I go? I'm going to go grab Calvin. And that sounds so strange to us, doesn't it? If Calvin to you sounds like a cold, disengaged, scientific theologian. I want to tell you something. You haven't read him. If you read John Calvin, and this sermon is not about John Calvin, there's a point in it. If you read John Calvin, it's full of God. You get lost in God. And that's why he was comforted. If you read the Institutes, they're expositions of the Word of God, the exact opposite of the stereotypes and what the religion departments are going to tell you today. I dare you to open it yourself. Okay? Well, this is what he said that comforted him from Calvin. He said, Calvin said in the Institutes, humility is not a virtue. Humility is not a virtue to be pursued. It's not a virtue to be sought. It's not, oh God, make me humble. Make me this humble person. This virtuous person. That's the way we treat humility, isn't it? You know what Calvin said? Humility is not a virtue to be pursued. Humility is the deep realization that you have nothing but Jesus. Humility is actually understanding you have nothing but Jesus. We need more of that kind of humility. I need more of that kind of humility. This church needs more of that kind of humility. The church universal needs more of that kind of humility. If we really believed that we are and have nothing but Jesus, imagine what would happen. Maybe another Reformation and Revival. Right? Now how does that happen though? I mean, how in the world, if you don't seek a humility like that, how do you gain a deep awareness that you have nothing but Jesus? What's interesting is this text, in a very backhanded and side way, kind of slaps us on the side of the cheek and shows us what that looks like. It's not what you necessarily look for when you come in and grab the text and it hits you up front. I mean, when we're reading this text, what are we usually concerned with when we read this text? 
The identity of Jesus, the self-revelation of Jesus. This is the high watermark where he reveals who he is to his disciples. And remember what's happening here. They have the term. They have the term son of man. They have the term that there's going to be the Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Messiah. They know there's going to be a David-like king, but he's going to be greater. They know there's going to be a descending from David that's going to be better. They know all of this. They have the form. And Jesus comes in and he blows up the form as he gives new revelation of what that actually means and looks like. You know, the metaphors that have been used throughout Scripture is there's an old wineskin. You have the skeleton. You have the shadow. The hint of the truths that have been passed on throughout the Old Testament of what this person would look like. But this new wine comes in and it can't hold it. It busts it. The substance is more beautiful and more radiant than they ever could have thought. Who is he? He is the Son of Man. And in the next passage, what you're going to see is the same great one that confessed Jesus. Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the thoughts of God. You have the thoughts of man. This isn't a turnaround because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take this hero king and it's not going to be the one that comes in like Caesar and destroys Rome. He's going to triumph and he's going to remove every Goliath and every kingdom that gets in the way of the milk and the honey. Yes, he will because he is the hero king. But he's going to do it by way of a cross and by way of suffering. And maybe that's why some said he's Jeremiah. He's a downer. You know, he's, he's kind of like very sober and serious, his message, right? Maybe he was the first Puritan. <laughs> no, I had just, a, I don't want to go that route. I had a church history prop and he said, if you want to have a party, invite a Puritan. I just flew right over everybody. Okay. Let's move on. All right. How do you come to deeply realize you have nothing but Jesus? How does this happen? Well, the passage, again, it tells us not in the upfront way, but it comes around side and hits you. The first is when you realize you cannot know Jesus on your own. When you realize that you cannot know Jesus on your own, you begin to deeply realize you have nothing but Jesus. Where are you in that? Where are you right now in realizing that you cannot know Jesus on your own? You can't come to a rightful thought about who he is in your mind and in your heart on your own. You can't come to a true faith and a comforting embrace of who he is on your own. It can't happen. If we read verse 14, we get the answer. And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. That's the whole point of all the wrong answers. All the wrong answers in this passage are to drive home that you can't know Jesus on your own. You see, what every one of these folks had was a a self-understanding of who Jesus was. They came to it on their own. Now, it's amazing, though. They have what you and I don't have. Or we can now, they could look at us and they'll say, no, you've got more than we had. And we'll say, no, you had more than we had. And it'll go back and forth and it'll be a nice argument in heaven. But they had Jesus right there command the earth, command creation to do what he wanted. 
They had Jesus command the demons doing whatever he wanted. They had Jesus commanding the body to do whatever he wanted. Be healed. Stretch forth your hand. Get up and walk. He did all these things. Miracles. Outrageous, authoritarian teaching so much so they said, we've never heard anything like this. Not just what we're hearing, but the way he speaks, it's as if he's God. And Jesus does this all in their midst. And when they're asked, who is he? Well, he might be John the Baptist. He might be Elijah. Maybe Jeremiah. Maybe one of the prophets. They missed him. And he was right before their eyes. On your own, you will never come to know Jesus. So what kept them from coming to know Jesus? And here's the dark secret in the passage, and that is that there is a dark desire in all of us that keeps us from knowing Jesus. I mean, there's two types of people in the passage. There's probably two types of people here. There's two types of people. We're either one or the other predominantly, but there's a mixture of us. There's the religious in us. And what the religious does, this dark desire is what the Bible calls sin. It's so dominating. It's so all-encompassing. It's so infecting of your mind and your heart and your hands. Every part about us that when we actually begin to hear Jesus, if we're the religious people, you know, we're the good people, the good people that go to church. If we're the people in church, if we're those that are being talked about here, we know in Philippi there were two types. There were the Jewish believers that would go to the synagogues and those that had the context to understand the prophets. So, those folks were probably asked. But remember, we knew that when Jesus makes the self-revelation, he goes 25 miles north to the land of the tribes that were never pushed out of the promised land. They never got out. And it's there that he actually reveals that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. So we know there's two types of people here. The first group are the people like us, the good people, the people that go to church. And when he reveals himself to the people who go to church or they see, what happens is the dark desire within us called sin takes Jesus and squeezes it to fulfill our own dark desires. In other words, we use Jesus to get what we want. The religious people in those days, they might have wanted a, a John the Baptist or Elijah to upset things. They had a concept of a king. And Jesus was squeezed into what they want. For their ends. And this is how good people fail to see Jesus. We use him as a rule. We use him as a checklist. We use him as a how-to. We use him as a mark for good living. But the bottom line is, we're using him to get what we want. And it's a dark desire. And how do you know you do this? Here's a good check for all of us. When's the last time you got angry? Why did you get angry? Because you didn't get what you wanted. And when we don't get what we want, we get angry. And it might be we get angry with God because He's not giving us the goods. And he's blowing out all of our expectations of what we think life should be. And we thought that if I do what I'm supposed to do, you're going to do what you're supposed to do. We have an agreement, right? 
And this is the way good people deal with God. I do it, you do it, the church does it. But then we know there are the bad people, right? These are the folks that say, look, I'm not going to give the nod to God at all. I want what I want, and I'm not going to use God to do it. I'm just going to go out and get it. These are the folks I grew up with in New England. These are the folks that have been second, third generation of people that have never gone to church. Church is irrelevant. God is irrelevant. I mean, what in the world? Who cares about social acceptability? You know, this is outright secularism, outright hedonism. It might be so, so much they don't give the nod to God that they go after their badness by just being bad. Look, this is, this is the kind of people that Jesus hung out with, right? The pimps and the prostitutes. Badness. I want what I want, and I'm not going to nod at God. I'm going to go after and get it. And the dark desire is doing that as well. What's interesting in both accounts, though, isn't it? That in the good people and in the bad people, they're both avoiding Jesus. All getting what they want. All saying, God, in their hearts, whether they express it verbally or not, in their hearts they're saying, I know where happiness and life and satisfaction and the good is and salvation is. I want to be Lord and I want to be Master and I want to be my own Savior. I want to get what I want because I think this is the goods. And the good people use Jesus to get it. The bad people say, the heck with God and Jesus. Why give the nod there? Just go get it. Right? But both are avoiding Jesus. Now, you come to deeply realize. So the first thing we've got to realize is that on your own, you can't come to know Jesus. The second thing you need to realize is that only God can make Jesus known to you. Read verse 17 with me. Look at it. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood, which just means mortal man, it's a common Hebrew phrase, has not revealed this to you. That's just what we just said in our first point, isn't it? You on your own cannot come to know Jesus. And Jesus says to Simon, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven did. That's stunning. If you really believe that, humility will set in. You will really believe you are nothing and have nothing but Jesus. Now, how does God do this? How does God reveal Jesus to you, though? I mean, the whole point of the passage, again, is that Jesus is central. Well, first he's being shown, again, what we just saw. You cannot come to know Jesus on your own, but the God the Father will reveal Jesus to you. Well, how does he do it? Let's look at verses 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on shall be loosed in heaven. And so we have one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible, right? This is the dividing line between a Catholic and a Protestant. Regardless of what it means, two major interpretations have gone in two major identifications or proclamations of this is the Christian church based on the understanding of this passage. So I'm not going to tackle 
that issue right now. Maybe I'll get into it a little bit next week. I doubt it. I don't think it's important, in all honesty. Because I think we can make our point without having to see what divides Protestants and Catholics. What I want you to see now, though, is that there's something that Jesus builds his church on. However you come down, if you end up going the Protestant direction, you end up going the Catholic direction. You can see in this passage that Jesus says, I'll build my church on that, to Peter. So he's building his church on something. Or we could say, there's something that God is using to reveal Jesus to people. You see, can you make that with me? We know that that God alone reveals Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I'll build my church. They're saying the same thing. I will build my church. God the Father, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because you didn't get it. God revealed it to you. I'll build my church. God will reveal it. I'll build my church on something. God will reveal me on something. That much we can say. You go to the next one, there's also something. If you look at the keys, whatever that means, these keys open and close the kingdom of heaven. So another way of saying it, if, if God reveals Jesus to you, that's obviously an opening of the kingdom of heaven. If you begin to see Jesus, heaven must have opened for you to do that. So, these keys that open and close the kingdom are something or a means by which God reveals Jesus to you. What is it? Roman Catholicism has one answer. Protestants have another. Here's the Protestant answer. The answer among Protestants is what opens, what is the keys, what ultimately is the rock, is the apostolic account of Jesus. So how do you come to know Jesus? How does God the Father reveal Jesus to us? Through a message. It's called the Gospel. If Paul were here, he'd say, I bank my whole ministry on it. I'm not ashamed of it so much that I wrote one of the greatest books in all the Bible and I said to those at Rome who are Christians I can't wait to preach the gospel to you I want to bear fruit among you and I'm going to preach the gospel to you to believers that's so foreign to us and he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for our salvation how you come in how you continue, and how you make it in the end. Right? So in the Gospel, the message of Jesus, beauty shows up. The light actually shines. And Jesus stands forth in all His saving glory to you. And when you see Him, only seeing His beauty is what reaches the bottom of your heart and changes its nature. A law, a principle, a how-to cannot penetrate to the bottom of your heart and change your nature. It can't subdue your dark desires. But the beauty of Jesus reaches the deepest parts of our hearts and changes us. You get justified, if you want to use the theological terms. 
You're given new life and you're sanctified, if you want to use theological terms. But what happens is, is the one who is greater than David, the one who's more desirable than your dark desire, when he shows up, you let it go. You do turn to Jesus and trust him. And so if you are going to grow, I mean, we've got to think about this. Real practically speaking, how do you plan on growing in the Christian life? How do you plan on, telling, how do you plan on leading someone to Jesus? If we don't preach Jesus and all his glory, and then God the Father uses that message, it's the power of God by which Jesus actually shows up, and he stands before the person, and the person's eyes are now seeing, and their heart is now warmed and embracing, and they're ready to worship. If we don't preach Jesus, what are we going to give people? And how are we going to change? A law and a principle and a how-to and a program will not bow the human heart at all. And if you're struggling with your dark desire, which we all do, because even as a Christian, that dark desire, we are told, never leaves fully. It stays with us. Okay? And so when you're struggling with it, how do you, how do you war against it? Only the beauty of Jesus will cause you to lose a desire to pursue a greater one. Okay? Dennis Barker said, even a church service can get pretty interesting when Jesus shows up. Remember Barney Fife? Remember him? I don't know. I I was young, but I still saw him. You remember Deputy Andy Griffith? Remember what he used to do with his hands? Remember? What did he say? These hands are registered with the FBI as lethal weapons. Remember? The gospel message needs to be registered. It's a lethal weapon. It's the power of God, where God is actually at work for his glory in a simple message. And of course the world says, foolishness. And God says, it's the wisdom of God. It's the jewel. It's what you sell everything to get. It's my glory of my son. Right? Okay. Let's end. The story is told about a very wealthy man who had a very devoted son, and they had a mutual passion. And that passion that they both shared was art collecting. They traveled around the world together, and they would collect very precious pieces of art and paintings, from Picasso to Van Gogh to Monet. The father was widowed, so his son was his joy. Day after day, well, there was a war that erupted, and the son enlisted and was sent overseas. And day after day, the son, the father would wait for the son, and the father would pray for the son. And the son would write, and the father would wait for news from the front. And one day, he got news that he did not want to hear. It came in those telegrams that have a little black, uh, black uh, envelope around the outside, and he found out his son was killed in action. And he read further, and his son was killed trying to save his buddies who were caught in a crossfire and pinned down. So he got a medals. He was honorably uh, decorated. And yet this man's night got even darker, right? This was around Thanksgiving. Now at Christmas, there was a soldier that showed up at his front door, and he had a package And the soldier said, your son and I became very close. And he told me that you both have a passion and a love for art. 
and you have a joint art collection. Well, I myself am an artist and I wanted to give you this. And so the father opened up the package and there was a portrait of his son. He cleared out all his expensive, priceless pieces of art that were above his chimney, his fireplace, and he put his sons there. As the weeks and days went by, he received letter after letter from soldier and friend who had come across his son in the armed services, saying how he had touched their lives and how much he meant to them when they were on the battlefield and what he tried to do and some of them that were saved. And as day went by and week went by, that piece of art got more and more precious to the father. Spring came, the father got very, very ill, and he died. He left very specific instructions of what to do with his estate and his will. So the auctioneer came in and they opened up all his art to auction to the public. But there was a very specific stipulation, and that was you have to sell the portrait of my son first before all the rest of the pieces. Now the crowds that crowded into this particular area where they had it, they started with a piece of art, and it was quiet for about five minutes. Nobody would make a bid. Everybody wanted to get on to the other pieces. And the auctioneer had to say, look, we can't go forward unless this is bid upon. Then we can move to the other pieces. So finally a next door neighbor said, I knew his son and I liked him very well. Will you take $50 for it? He says, going once, you know the drill. Right? $50, sold. And he says, I hereby declare this auction over. Now, you can imagine the stunned belief, disbelief in the crowd, right? The roar, the eruption. Wow, wait a minute. What about those pieces? It can't be over. And the auctioneer said very plainly and very simply, he said, quote, It's very simple. According to the will, whoever takes the son gets it all. Hmm. Whoever takes the son gets it all. We go to church to get the son. And when we get the son, we get it all. And if you're in the religious category and you've gone to church your whole life and you're over-churched and you're like us, good people, come to Jesus to get it all. Put aside your goodness, put aside your lists, put aside your programs, put aside your how-tos and come to Jesus. And if you're in the bad category, you know, you have one of these great testimonies or bragamonies, as the prop said. You have this bad reality. You're unchurched. You have never seen what a church is like. Maybe today's your first day. Come to Jesus to get it all. And then I want to say to us as a church and as individuals, let us commit ourselves to being Jesus-driven again. Let us commit ourselves to being gospel-driven again. Let us continue to go forward. Yes, we're in a new building, but it's the same message and it's the same vision. It's the same everything. Just a a new place, and I must say it's a wonderful place. But who we are and what we do is still about being Jesus-driven and gospel-driven. That's why we're here. Nothing else.
for His glory, for your good, for the good of Waco, and for the good of beyond. Amen.